listening to First Church Charlotte. commitment to the Lord. Uh, set aside time for prayer and fasting. We're going to 2020. I believe the Lord is going to continue what he began and take it to a higher level, not for us, but for him and his kingdom and his glory. Amen. So I'm going to read a passage to you. Uh, my title uh, my title tonight is this, what kind of church should we be? What kind of church should we be? I'm going to read Acts chapter number 11. You can stay seated because I don't know the speed at which I'll go through this. And so I want you to kind of direct your heart toward, toward it. Uh, the word of the Lord. I am I'm going to try to be concise, but I think I have a story you will never have heard. Do you know how hard that is for a preacher? It is crazy hard to have a story you haven't heard. But I think tonight, <clears throat> for the first time in, I don't know, seven years, <laughs> I have a story you probably have not heard, and I want to tell it. Um, and so let's, let's direct our heart and spirit to the word of the Lord and grow from the life that is in these words. There's a story told of how the church began at Antioch. There are, in church history, there are two cities of revival that are really the essence of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the history of the New Testament church. There's two cities that serve as the foundation of that, that great work, that great beginning of the church age. The first of them you will know, of course, Jerusalem. That's where Peter stood up in Acts chapter number two and he preached the gospel. And many were brought that day into a believing faith in Jesus Christ. They were baptized. They were filled with uh, the Spirit. And so we celebrate what began in the book of Acts. It was here where Peter said to all who are afar off, any as, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And the story for the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts will follow the apostle Peter, and it will tell the story of revival among the Jews. This will lead to the the first martyr of the New Testament church where someone pays the price for their faith, their belief in Jesus Christ by giving of their life. This is the story Stephen. Stephen preaches. You can read this story. After this, after this shock, shall we say. Now, we had known for a long time that people would kill each other over religion. They've been doing it for as long as there is recorded history. But this is the first time it happens among the Jesus followers. And Stephen uh, pays the price of this. And he stoned, which was the favored method of, of punishment uh, that they would bring against what they thought to be blasphemers. Interestingly, there was, a, there was a, a man there of some prestige among the, the Jewish faith, and his name was Saul of Tarsus. Uh, that's how you would say it in the Hebrew. In Greek, it's Paul. Um, contrary to a lot of people's belief, God did not change Paul's name. Uh, it's just if you say it in Hebrew, it's Saul. And if you say it in Greek, it's Paul. I know I've ruined a lot of good messages just by telling you what the Bible actually says. I hate it when I do that. <laughs> 
but um, uh, it's just one way's Hebrew, the other way's Greek. And so uh, Saul of Tarsus is there, and he whips up the crowd. He probably was part of the idea, and then he holds the coats for those rash enough in their personality. Not every personality type can hurt someone. I don't want to be the kind of person who is 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 able to hurt someone. I want to be I want to be harmless if the Lord will help me to be harmless. I I don't want to speak against others. I don't have to agree. That doesn't mean I'd need to speak against them. I don't want to be harsh in my spirit. I don't want to I don't want to whip other less um, shall we say prudent people up and then hold their coats while they do what I didn't want to be seen doing. And so Saul of Tarsus is here and something amazing happens between this story that is told uh, in in uh, chapter number 11. Now, the, uh, Stephen has been stoned earlier. And so I want to real quickly kind of catch you up on the story, and I'll give it to you in the Nathaniel version. Uh, after the persecution that arose, and I'm on verse 19, after the persecution that arose, after Stephen... The people after that who were Christians, after this shock to the people, uh, they scattered, they traveled after this. They went as far as Phoenicia, they went to Cyprus, they went to Antioch. Somebody say Antioch. But they, being Jews themselves, they only preached to the Jews only. But some of them were from Cyprus and Cyrene. They were believing Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene. These are called Hellenists, not uh, Greek people, but Greek-influenced Jews, Jews who have adopted the lifestyle, uh, the mannerisms, the philosophy, the habits of the Hellenistic world, the Greek sphere of influence. And they, uh, some of them were from Cyprus and Cyrene, and so on the islands of Cyprus and Cyrene, something happened for the first time that never happened before, and that is the story of Jesus Christ is preached to Hellenists, and they heard uh, what the preacher was saying, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to to the Lord. Now, so the, the distinction here is that although these were believing Jews that were under the influence of the Hellenistic world, the first Greek Gentiles to believe, the first ones to become part of this faith movement happens in these little islands of Cyprus and Cyrene and uh, moves from there uh, these people from there, when they get to Antioch, verse number, verse number 20, uh, the hand of the Lord is upon them, and this great revival, this great revival happens there. And they hear about it in Jerusalem, and so they decide to send Barnabas to go to Antioch and see what the blazes is going on, because there is fire in Antioch, pardon the pun. And so he goes, and what does he see when he gets there? The Bible says he saw the grace of God, and it made him happy to see the grace of God. He didn't show up looking for people to exclude he went looking for grace. Let me just say real quick, if as a believer you live your life looking for grace, you'll be astonished who God can reach, who God can influence, who God can save. 
As a believer, if you show up looking to decide whether or not you approve or disapprove, you won't have much grace in your walk with God. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to show up looking for grace, looking for the hand of God manifest in the earth. He was glad, the Bible says, and he encouraged them that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Listen to what the writer says. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Look at verse 25, and I love this. Then Barnabas departed Tarsus to seek Saul. Let me reread that. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. He is trying to decide what to do with what God is doing. Oh, I pray that we would have the kind of moves of God that we don't know what to do with it. We're just like, I don't even know, I, I, don't even, I don't even know what to do with it. Do I know someone crazy enough to work this? I know somebody. Where is Saul of Tarsus? You mean the same guy who once held the coats as Stephen was stoned? Yes, that's exactly. Because in the intervening chapter, Saul became the most celebrated and, shall we say, controversial convert of this new faith. And Barnabas departs for Saul to seek, excuse me, departs for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he said, you're coming with me to Antioch. Saul doesn't know what to do with himself. Saul is stuck making tents. Uh, he's lost his religious reputation with the Sanhedrin. They no longer trust him. All the doors that were once opened to him are now closed, and he is stuck. And it seems like God has forgotten him. So word to everyone who feels forgotten God knows right where you are, and Barnabas will be sent to look for what you can add to the kingdom of God. Praise God, somebody. And so they have this, this introduction uh, to a, a faith to the Gentile world, and although the initial church is in Jerusalem. So let me give you some timeline here. I'm going to try to do that because remember, I'm trying to tell you a story you haven't heard before. Um, and it's not this story. I'll get to it. And so if Jesus is crucified in about 30 AD, the church in Antioch starts about 42 AD. So there's a 12-year gap between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the founding of the church in Antioch, not by Gentiles, but by Jews who didn't stay in Jerusalem. All of Christianity, whether founded in Jerusalem or Antioch, is founded by Jews. The difference is what kind of a church are they going to build? This is a fundamental question for them, and you will see the consequences played out of whatever kind of church they decide to build. Now, in Jerusalem, they have some advantages. In Jerusalem, they have the highest level of biblical knowledge of any group of people anywhere. In Jerusalem, they have converted Pharisees. They have converted scribes. They have converted lawyers. They even have converted members of the Sanhedrin Council. Think Nicodemus. So you see, uh, they have advantages in Jerusalem, but what they fail to see is that the work of God may be beyond what they understand and they can accept. And so they spend 
so much of their energy trying to determine who can be or who cannot be in this faith. And what this somehow does, I don't want to get into why, I don't know why, but somehow, once your energy is turned to the direction of deciding who God should bless or God shouldn't bless, God should include or God shouldn't include, you guys know this, you've heard this preached a lot, once you turn in that direction, it is as though uh, the Lord reminds you, he moves like the wind, you can't bottle him up. You can't tell God who he's going to bless. You can't say God bless this section but not this section. God will smile at you and move right over here and upend a bucket of blessing like you've never seen in your life. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't even work for you <clears throat> to, to in some way uh, try to hide your exclusionary habits under the visible signs of authority. God will ooze out of our limits. I want to remind you that the revelation of God's work to the world was not given at Antioch. It was given in Jerusalem. The vision, the visitation, God speaking to the apostle, to the one who he had noted would have keys to the kingdom. I don't believe the only keys that Peter had by divine visitation was the message of Acts 2.38. I believe the keys to the kingdom are also manifest in a sheet coming down from heaven, all manner of unclean things in this, this sheet. And uh, Peter says, oh, Lord, you know, I, you're too carnal for me, Lord. Don't try to get me to be carnal like you, Lord. You need me to save you. And here's Peter rebuking the Lord, and the Lord rebukes him and says, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. That's why we should be careful talking about people in the church. God may have cleansed them, and you're calling unclean what God has cleansed. Man, that's some fine preaching. Take your time. Just take your time. Take your time. And so, and so that revelation was not an Antioch gift. That was a Jerusalem gift. But in Jerusalem, they're trapped in yesterday. They're trapped in their places of safety. They're trapped, they're trapped, they're trapped. And they cannot see that what they're only going to have is what they already have gotten. They cannot see anything beyond. Now, I don't know exactly how this applies to us. I know it's tempting for us uh, to try to apply this and be done with it, but I don't want to do that myself. I, I don't want to presume I understand all the mysteries of this. Um, I want to read it again and again with, a f with fresh eyes and a humbled heart that says, Lord, don't let me miss what's next in your kingdom. Don't let me miss what is new in your kingdom. Don't let me miss the new door, the effectual and the fervent door. I don't want to presume I understand this as applied to us. I want to again and again go to the text and say, Lord, I want to be a part of whatever is in your heart to do in this community. Can I have a big amen? amen. And so, uh, in spite of the revelation given to Peter, Jerusalem cannot, cannot get past its comfort zone. And so revival moves from Jerusalem to Antioch, and it is in Antioch where the first missionary journey is, 
is sent. I'm unaware of any missionary journey ever sent from Jerusalem. It's in Antioch that the second missionary journey is sent. I am unaware of any missionary journey ever sent from Jerusalem. The third and on and on. By the way, all my notes are available on the Bible study link of the website just in case you had forgotten all of the beautiful work I have done preparing for you to show you the kindness and the depth and the true deep profundity of my preparation. <laughs> anyway, so uh, there's a switch that happens. In Antioch, there is a willingness to, to open their hearts to people who are unlike them. What kind of church are we going to be? Well, we've already crossed this bridge. We've decided we're going to be a church that is not built around the kind of people we are or our ethnic inheritances or our socioeconomic placement or our economic strata. We're going to be a church based upon what Jesus can do in the heart of a believer. We've already crossed that bridge. We've already decided that. That's not something we fight for anymore. There's uh, Everybody who didn't like that, they left a long time ago. I mean decades ago. We've been a church of open hearts and open doors for many, many, uh, many, many years. That doesn't mean we've arrived, and that doesn't mean we don't have work to do. Amen? That just means that, like Antioch, we're not stuck in a, how shall we say, ethnic box relative to what God will will do. And so also in Antioch, they have a heart for others. They don't simply focus on their needs. There's no record of the church in Jerusalem ever uh, sending out aid or help to anyone. But in Antioch, when there's trouble in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch takes up money and sends to Jerusalem. Uh, if, as far as I know, there's no record of any of the church in, in, in Jerusalem sending out any money to the missionaries who were working all around the empire. They didn't believe those folks should be included in the kingdom of God, or at least a predominant number of them didn't. Um, and as a result, uh, you see no aid sent from Jerusalem. You see aid coming to them, but you don't see aid going out from them. Uh, this is uh, the temptation that is within every church where the church is organized to serve itself, but it cannot see the mission beyond the boundaries of, of the self. That is a profound difference between the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church. At the Antioch church, you see a picture of people desperately praying, asking for direction of, of God. You can read things like this. Uh, prophets, uh, let's see. You can see uh, at the end of chapter number 11, they're praying. Prophets are coming there. Uh, they send relief to brethren dwelling in Judea. If you turn to 12, you can see um, the story continuing. Let's see. And in the end of 12, um, after Saul and Barnabas come to uh, Jerusalem, they go back to Antioch. And you will see in Antioch, chapter number 13, they're praying and they're seeking God on what to do. The Bible says, and this is 13 and 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. I'm not saying they didn't do it. I'm just saying we don't have images, scriptural images of the Jerusalem church having that kind of, that kind of others-focused passion, mission-focused passion. You see it in Antioch 
Antioch, but you do not see it in Jerusalem. Oh, they know the scripture. They just are all about what they know about the scripture. They have no sense of the people who don't know the scripture. They have the most formal authority when the council of the church meets. Where does it meet? In Jerusalem, Acts 15. When they come for direction, where do they come? Jerusalem. They have formal authority. In Antioch, they only have informal passion. But here's the thing about informal passion. If you truly have a passion for the kingdom of God, you're not looking for a reason not to do it. You're looking for for a reason to do it. That's the nature of passion. You cannot hold passion down. I pray that we are that kind of a church, and I believe the Lord is helping us become more that way, where we cannot celebrate authority that we have. There's a whole world of hungry people. We can't celebrate our knowledge and our wisdom and sit back in some sense of ecclesiastical accomplishment, spiritual um, vanity, and let the rest of the world just be stuck. No, we want to be like the church in Antioch. You come together, you pray and fast and say, Lord, whatever you want to do, we want to be a part of it. You want to send missionaries there? We're going to send missionaries there. We don't even have to always have success. We can endure failure and keep the mission at the forefront of our heart. You see, the real test of all of our passion is not what you do when things go well, but what you do when things don't go well. They can go through struggle. On this missionary trip, they will have all sorts of trouble. They will be run out of town. Like us, they will seek after God. Paul will go to one city and the Lord will say, this isn't the place. And so he'll go to another city and the Lord will say, what about this city? And he'll go over there and here he'll get a vision that it should be over here. And that's how the gospel moves from Asia to Europe, by the way. He wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit sent him to Troas. And in Troas, he saw a vision of the man saying, come down to Macedonia and help us. That's the leap of the Christian faith from Asia to Europe because what God knows is if the gospel doesn't make it to Europe, it won't survive in Asia. <laughs> Moving right along. So I want to tell you a story that you probably haven't heard. I've given you some insight into the differences between the churches. I don't want to suggest that everything in Jerusalem is bad and everything in Antioch is good. That's not my point. My point is to learn from the, the themes and the, the pictures we have of these churches and let those things inspire us to be a church that is missional. Can I have a big amen? A church that seeks after a God, a church that is passionate, a church that is focused upon others, a church with an open door, a church with open open hearts, a church that is quick to see grace and not very much in the business of excluding anyone except those who must be for the purposes of the testimony of Jesus Christ must be in some way uh, identified and uh, disciplined through church discipline. We want to err on the side of seeing grace in people. And so this is the story I, I would like to tell you. There was a young man at Antioch. You will know his name when I tell you, but I doubt seriously anyone would guess it as I prep for the great reveal. Uh, He was a young man, and when the church was started, when the church was started in Antioch, this young man, uh, he he was quite young. He was only seven years old. But his life... 
the whole of his life would be woven through the Antioch church. And his life becomes a testimony of the kind of people that the Antioch church produced. Um, Real quick, a timeline. So if Jesus was born in the counting system in 4 BC, now there's a whole study of Gregorian calendars which we won't get into, thus saving you a nap here in the middle of the service. But once they, the various Gregorian calendars worked out, so Christ actually is born in 4 BC, not the turn of the BC AD, which makes sense to me, but there I go being logical again. Uh, Jesus is born 4 BC. He's crucified uh, 30 uh, BC, uh, AD, excuse me. So Born 4 B.C., crucified 30 A.D. Um, Antioch is started 12 years later by the Jews, not Gentiles, who left Jerusalem after the persecution of of Stephen. Um, He's a young man, seven years old. When Paul is found by Barnabas and brought to help us do something with this crazy revival that's happening here in Antioch, this young man is nine years old. Can you imagine with the zeal and the, 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 the honor with which a young man, nine years old, views someone like the Apostle Paul who has miracles in his hands? I grew up in a church, and as a young, preach, as a young person in a church, I idolized uh, certain preachers. I had my favorite preachers. I loved preaching. My mom used to tease me because I would uh, sleep during the worship and then wake up for the preaching. I would sit on the front row, and I would be the first. I would take notes. I, um, I had a goal to underline every scripture in my Bible. Makes no sense whatsoever. If you're going to underline them all, they might as well not be underlined. It's the same thing. But, you know, that's... Uh, a young person's mindset, and I, I would sit there and I would circle and I would underline. I was, I, I idolized these, uh, these, these kind of men. Now imagine you were a young person growing up, viewing the Apostle Paul, viewing Barnabas, being a part in your formative years of the great revival that was happening here at Antioch. When they were praying and the Spirit spoke and said, "Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, and send them out on the first missionary journey," this young man was thirteen years old. How formative must it have been to a young 13-year, it's killing you not to know who I'm talking about, a 13-year-old man, a young man, to see these apostles sent out and he thinks to himself, I want to do something for God. I don't know what. I'm too young. I'm only 13. I want to do something for God. You know the kids that stay late when they're praying and they're, you know, sleeping when they're younger under the pews and when they're uh, when they get older, they're like when they're teenagers, they start you know flirting after church. You know, you know how church kids flirt with each other. You're staying for the second service too. <laughs> That's a great line. Um, he's 13 years old now. Here's what's interesting: the next year, Paul comes back to the city. This young man's 14 years old, but Paul only stays a short time, and uh, he comes back through. And, and then when he comes back. When he comes back uh, in 51 AD, this young man is 16 years old, and Paul spends some time there. Imagine how impactful it would be on a 16-year-old young man to have the Apostle Paul teaching, the Apostle Paul staying in their homes, writing the, uh, the letters to the church. At 16 and 17, Paul has come back and he stays there for well, this young man, 16, 17, 18 years old, 
16, 17, 18 years old. Some of the most formative years of a young man's life. Paul is there. And what is Paul doing? Teaching, preaching, pastoring, writing 1 Thessalonians, writing 2 Thessalonians. Finally, 54 AD, this young man is now 19 years old. And Paul leaves for the third missionary journey. Just how impactful that must have been. Three years later, he's back for winter in Corinth. And this young man is now 22 years old. And there in the city, he is in these communities of faith, these these homes with these people. And here, this man, this young man is 22 21 and 22 years old and, and uh, here Paul is writing Galatians and then in the spring of 58 Paul is writing Romans right there in Corinth. The summer of 58 Paul leaves again to go to Jerusalem in spite of them trying to talk him out of it. Uh, this, young, this young man is 23 years old. Paul's arrested. Paul, to save his life, appeals to Roman justice will be to be tried before the Caesar, uh, before Caesar, and so they send him a Rome, to Rome, where actually he is acquitted in Rome. Um, he will later get in trouble again and, and, and be put to death, but not for this, this situation. This young man's name uh, uh, is Ignatius, and he is the second bishop of the church at Corinth. He is one of the earliest church fathers that we know about, the first wave of those who followed the apostles. And he followed uh, the bishop, and that's what they called in this time when uh, they didn't have buildings, and so they didn't have so much pastors. They had meetings in homes, and they had bishops over areas. Um, This name is now used in a more traditional or a more institutional sense in some of the uh, various uh, church institutions, but that's what it would have been called. And here, uh, he was a pastor over, a bishop over the church at, at Antioch. And Ignatius was formed by this kind of exposure. He wrote, when, when he finally was arrested and he was uh, sent to trial, um, he wrote seven letters to the churches he knew about on his way. Now, these letters uh, were not included in the canon uh, because he was not an apostle. Uh, he had not seen the Lord Jesus Christ, and so his writings would have not been included in the canon or been qualified to be included in the canon. However, uh, his life seems to have been, for the most part, a shining example. This far removed by history, it's hard to know whether or not um, people wrote slander against him, enemies wrote slander against him to hurt him, and it's hard to know exactly, uh, sifting the history of it all, uh, what was the case in that regard. But he seems, by all review, him uh, along with Polycarp, who was a, a neighboring bishop, of another city. They seem to be uh, these best, in many ways, of the early church fathers, just men of sacrificial commitment, men who were focused completely upon uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, I, I would, if I told you that a preacher you knew had written a book, perhaps you might want to read it. Perhaps you would value what it had to say. You wouldn't think it was the Bible, but you'd still want to read it because they had uh, insight. Uh, That's the way I view the writings of Ignatius. They're not scripture, but it's interesting to see the kind of personality that's produced by an Antioch church. Let me give you a few things of what we know. As far as we understand, Ignatius 
hated and feared division in the church, and he did everything he could to keep people from dividing, from attacking each other, from hurting each other. This makes perfect sense to me because this is a very Antiochian, if that's the correct way to say it. It's a very Antioch style of doing church. Let's not look for ways to get rid of each other. Let's look for ways to include each other. Let's not look for ways to judge one another. Let's look for ways to prefer one another. This would have been a very Antioch style of of church. He wrote to the Magnesian church. Yes, that's exactly how it's pronounced. It's a small city near Ephesus. It's in your notes. Thank you very much. Uh, He wrote scathingly of the Ebionites who demanded the keeping of Jewish regulations. This is along with Gnosticism, the big theological debates of the day. You have to keep the Old Testament law in order to please God, or Jesus wasn't real flesh. He was just an emanation. One's Gnosticism, the other is uh, Judaism. He writes to them, it's outrageous to utter the name of Jesus and live in Judaism. Why? Because we have a better high priest. We have a perfect altar. Why would you want to keep using the product that didn't work when someone died to give you a product that did work? And so uh, he furthermore, furthermore, he uh, fought in his letters against the docetists who believed that Christ was not flesh, only an emanation of God, thus removing the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would, could not be in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. When you read the book of Hebrews and you read so much of the theological reproof that's in like for example Peter and John and uh, the writings of Paul you find them warring against the, the the belief that you had to keep Old Testament law and the belief that Christ is not truly a substitutionary sacrifice but rather just a type of theophany that did not really suffer and die but just seemed to suffer and die uh, when he was and this is I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish up with this. Um, when Ignatius, Ignatius was arrested, it probably, we don't know exactly, it probably was according to a charge of, a charge of atheism. Uh, in this time, if they charged you with atheism, it wasn't because you didn't believe in God. It was because you didn't believe in uh, the Roman God, particularly you did not believe in Caesar. Um, That was heresy uh, to them because they feared the uprising of political rebellion. He probably was arrested for that, some charge of atheism, uh, either a denial of Roman gods or a denial of Caesar. He was taken from Antioch to Rome by an escort of 10 soldiers at nearly every stop. He met with the leaders of local churches and he wrote, on this trip to Rome where he would die, seven letters. Um, uh, He, in one letter, and I I don't have time to get too much into this, but uh, in one letter he emphasized apostolic authority and he challenged the people to hold to uh, the, 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 the people in Smyrna, which was where Polycarp was the pastor or the bishop. Uh, he, he, he implored them to acknowledge Polycarp's spiritual authority and to acknowledge uh, that he had apostolic anointing upon him and not to fight against him. That's one thing. Um, And he also, in another letter, and this is the one that touches me so much, um, 
in Rome, the Roman church found out that Ignatius, this is a story you've probably never heard, yay me, (laughs) I found one. (laughs) Um, The Roman church sought to use their influence to save his life. Now, this is what brothers do. We try to help each other. Can I have a big amen? This is what sisters do. We try to help each other. And so um, they found out he had been arrested and he was coming to Rome. He was being brought under escort of soldiers and he was going to be tried. So they immediately began to use their influence to save his life. And so in his letter that he wrote to Rome, which would get him, get there ahead of him, because of the Roman mail system, which was in many ways the first Pony Express. They just used more ships than ponies, but it was the same thing. They could, uh, by using the, the mail system of the empire, they could, they could send a letter much faster than a group could travel. So he wrote a letter to the church at Rome, and he asked them uh, not to intervene on his behalf, and he said this, I'm afraid that if you intervene, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, uh, if you interfere, if you interfere on my behalf, um, I won't have a chance to be martyred like the Lord Jesus Christ was. He said, my highest aspiration is to live the life that my Lord Jesus lived. And so don't ask anymore for mercy. This is the letter he wrote to the church at Rome. If they want to take my life, let them do it because the highest honor I could ever have is to live my life as the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of people an Antioch church produces. Mission-minded people. Purpose-driven people. Ministry-focused people. Kingdom-founded people. It's not about me and my elevation. It's about the kingdom of God and the testimony that results from my life. What I do for the kingdom is ever so much more important than what I receive in my life. Can you see that? The good I can do to help, to bless, the story that can be told, the testimony that could be given is of much more value than anything that happens for me. And he asked them not to intervene on his behalf. And Ignatius got to Rome and they took his life, thus fulfilling his wish. I'm going to end by reading this quote. Now I began to be a disciple. This is Ignatius writing. Now I began to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment, come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. That's heavy. I don't know if I'm that good of a Christian. (laughs) I don't know if you, don't act holy. I don't think you're that good of a Christian either. (laughs) I think you suckers are a long way below that. (laughs) But this is what I want to say. I want a little bit of that to get into our church culture and the fabric of who we are. The greatest thing we can do is be used of God. And the greatest vision that we can ever see is the vision of the kingdom of God manifest here on earth. Not me and mine, but the kingdom of God manifests 
through the goodness of God, the mercy of God, through the gospel being shared, through deeds of testimony, good deeds of testimony being wrought among the needy. Lord Jesus, we pray that that spirit that built a revival missionary church in Antioch would not be lost, but that it would be a part of who we are and what we become in you and through you in Jesus Christ. And we, we, we commit this year to come uh, to you and we commit our lives and our hearts and what we have, we commit it to you, Lord Jesus, that you in some way would take the loaves and fishes of our abilities and you would multiply them for the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you stand with me all over the house? Hallelujah, hallelujah. Just lift your hands around the house and say, yes, Lord, I want to see your kingdom. I will focus upon your call. I will see every talent I have through the kingdom and through your gifting. I will see every blessing I have through your generosity in my life. Just in your own words, just let your own heart be directed heavenward as we stand in his presence. Lord Jesus, I thank you for everything you've done. Oh, God. That's right, church. Your own language. Just talk to the Lord for a moment. I thank you for everything you've done. I thank you for the great work of redemption. I thank you for the the covering in your blood that allows us who are unclean to take the title of the clean. We who are unrighteous are given the title of the righteous through you. I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. But you did more than simply offer us salvation. You invited us to follow in your way. You invited us to live a life of spiritual purpose. You invited us to embrace a mission that is in some way of the kingdom of God. Don't let us just be content to receive a blessing or even be content to receive the gift of salvation. But let us choose that straight and narrow way which is beyond just the gift of salvation it's the turning away from self and it's the the clinging to the the kingdom of God and the, the mission of God the difference that can be wrought in this world through people of faith we all of us want to be laborers in your fields Lord give us courage like we've never known give us spiritual stamina and focus like we've never known in Jesus name we pray in Jesus name we pray amen Amen. All right. How many of you had ever heard the story of Ignatius before I told it to you? Sister, I'm so discouraged. No, I'm just having fun. (laughs) God bless you all. You're dismissed. I'll go with 99.9%. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.